the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program. As we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to turn our attention to Broadway and World War II and what those things have in common, as uh, talked about uh, with regard to the American theater during World War II in a new book, called Broadway Goes to War by authors uh, Robert McLaughlin and Sally Perry. And they both join me by phone. Uh, Bob, Sally, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, let's... Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to talk about Broadway, especially right now with Broadway reopening after the... Uh, after the pandemic but did was it business as usual on broadway through those years of world war ii well uh yes and no i mean obviously a lot of actors and directors and producers and whatnot ended up being drafted or serving in the armed services in one form or another so certain kinds of uh shows that hadn't been popular on broadway in a while like Burlesque, for example, became immensely popular again, and also with all the uh, servicemen in town, that was a that was a great place to go. The depression hit Broadway very badly. Uh, people couldn't raise money to put on shows. A lot of the artists went west to Hollywood to do their work. Uh, so there's a way in which kind of Broadway, the world, the war kind of boosted business on Broadway a little bit. That was kind of the beginning of the recovery for the theater. Yeah, I wondered about that because really, World War II fell. Or began uh, just over a decade after the Great Depression, and 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 I just wonder how well fixed people were not not just the producers um, and the performers, but the patrons as well. 
Well, of course, once the once the United States got involved in the war, uh, many people who had been struggling during the Depression had better incomes than they had had in some time. And it uh, they were kind of put in a position where um, they had money to spend for the first time in many years. But You know, Bob, when you say that... People weren't putting out... Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Bob, but when you say that about... Uh, you know, the, the war starting and people starting to make more money than they'd been making, that would have been hard to believe a year or two ago. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's true, but, you know, you look, at, you look at a lot of different popular culture. The movies are the same way. And, you know, during, in the, during the war years, 90 million people a week went to the movies. Now, not, not quite as many, obviously, as went to theater, but they were people who couldn't travel a lot. Well, uh, you know, and, and that's very consistent with today because the uh, all the transportation was being taken up for the war effort. And if you have money, you're going to have to you want to spend it somehow. Uh, you know, gambling also went up quite a bit during those times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was making a little bit of a reference to um, the the situation we find ourselves in now in a post-pandemic mm -hmm. world with um, some employers having a tough time getting people to come back to work because they'll make less money than they made on unemployment and with stimulus checks. Mm. Well, you know, and that's, that's, that's what I'm, that, sorry, yeah. Sally, that's what I meant, Bob, when, when I said a year or two ago that statement about people making more money during the war would have been hard to believe, but we've just seen something similar. Yes, yes. Well, and, and as Sally was saying, people had money for the first time in a long time, but they didn't have anything to spend it on. Uh, they couldn't travel, as Sally said. The consumer goods were not available because uh, most industries had converted to the war effort. Um, well, so, and there was know, a rationing. And, and rationing. Oh, yeah. oh, absolutely. And so, you know, entertainment, like the movies, like the theater, became one of the things that people could splurge on. And for... For Broadway, now with the movies, there was um, there were a lot of uh, uh, filmmakers that were making movies about the war, and, and mm -hmm. war pictures became a big thing. Did that happen on Broadway as well? Were the plays did they did they adjust to be contemporary in that way? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, we, our, our previous book um, was all about movies during World War II, so there was, there was a real synergy between them. I mean, we, you know, we think now, okay, there are, there are transfers between Broadway and Hollywood or vice versa. That, to a certain extent, happened during World War II as well, that uh, movie studios would invest in plays, and then the plays would get turned into, into movies eventually. Um, There's a way in which the theater was more attuned to the current events, things that were going on in the world that Hollywood was, or they were quicker to react to it, let's say. You know, the, the first explicitly anti-Nazi movie, Confessions of a Nazi Spy, is released in 1939. The first explicitly anti-Nazi play was called Culture, and it opened in September 1933, nine months after Hitler came to power. Wow. And that's... Is that... Um because playwrights tend to um, maybe uh, be less concerned about the business side the way filmmakers might be? 
Well, I think they're concerned about the business, and certainly the producers who are putting up the money are concerned about the business. But, you know, Hollywood, it's like a big factory. There there are all sorts of uh, producers and scriptwriters and directors. Everybody has their say about what's going to come out of the movie. There is also... Um, a lot more oversight in terms of what the films could be about, you know, the Hayes office and the production code, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Broadway plays didn't have that kind of, um, those kinds of limitations. It was more, you know, if you were a playwright and you had a play with a message and you could find a producer uh, who believed in you, you could get your play on. Yeah, and, you know, and that was especially true in the in the 1930s because we saw all sorts of theater, both on Broadway and off-Broadway, workers' theater, labor theater, things like that. And a lot of the workers were, you know, really interested in theater about what was going on in the world. And theater was actually a sort of a way to help explain the, the, the situation both domestically and overseas. You know, Sally, you mentioned the, the book you did about the movies, um, and and I just wanted to share with you both. I love the title of that book. We'll always have the oh, movies. I, I I am such a Casablanca fan that <laughs> you know I, I perked right up when I saw the title of uh, of your previous book. Um, well, go ahead. No, no, I was I was just going to say yeah. We 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 love the title of We'll Always Have the Movies. We couldn't quite come up with the same kind of thing for our for uh, our current book. Broadway goes to war. Um, but you know, it, it, there's there's so much synergy between the two that it was it was kind of fascinating looking at how movies dealt with the war as opposed to how theater dealt with the war. And and there's a, you know there's a lot of overlap, but there are also some ways in which theater did it differently. And I, I think with a more psychological realism. And well, and experiencing storytelling through theater as opposed to film is a very different experience and requires something more from the audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very true. The, you know, the, they tried to do some plays that involved battle scenes, but you know, that's not something you can do very well on stage, whereas the movies can do it really well. Yeah. But you know, in, but in the theater and we're avid theater goers, as you might expect. And that's one of the things that we miss is sort of the community of the theater because um, when you're at a play, if somebody laughs and everybody finds it amusing or terrifying or whatever, um, that provides a real sense of uh, how, how how plays work differently. There there was a play written by um, Mary Haley Bell, who who's Haley Mills's mother, and it was a it was a play about the resistance. And at one point, a traitor is killed at the lip of the stage, and Apparently, you could hear the backbone crack as he was killed, and the entire audience gasped. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, Sally, what, or, or maybe it was Bob who who was uh, pointing out the difference between what you can do in live theater versus the special effects and so on that you can build into storytelling in film. Um, did that did that mean the stories? on Broadway tended to be more about the home front? A lot of the best ones are. Um, there are a lot of really good home front uh, uh, plays showing how everyday people were responding to the new situation of the war, um, how they were coping with it, how they were contributing to it. Uh, a lot of uh, anxieties 
uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the problems that came along with the war, juvenile delinquency, for example, uh, or people getting involved in hasty marriages, things like that. Those are the kinds of subjects that the theater could deal with very well. Were there, um, were there hits that happened um, exclusively during that period that we would still know today? New, you know, new plays that, that were offered up? The um, uh, Lillian Hellman's play, Watch on the Rhine, mm-hmm. is, I think, still uh, fairly well-known, partly because there was a very successful movie made out of it. Um, and it was it was also revived at uh, out out in California last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what else, Alan? Um, well, if if we if we go back to the late thirties, um, there was a play version of Sinclair Lewis's "It Can't Happen Here." Um, it can't happen here was a a, a a big success as a novel. It came out the novel itself came out in nineteen thirty five, and it was about a person who gets elected president and turns out to be a fascist, closes down the government, uh, there's an armed insurrection and so forth, and that was turned into a play by, by, by Lewis and a collaborator and done with the Federal Theater Project, and that, that, was, that was immensely successful. So I'm not sure that the play was exactly as well known, but the, the concept of it is when the Federal Theater Project did it, there were 21 productions in 18 cities that all opened on the same night, and it was it was it was an incredible hit. You know, Sally, it's it's um, I, I don't know, serendipitous maybe um, that that you uh, mentioned that because that's the second time this week that, that I've been talking with someone who referenced uh, Sinclair Lewis and that title. It can't happen oh, really? here. Um, the the guest that I had on the show earlier this week. Um, had has just written a book called "It Can Happen Here." Mm. Oh, okay. And and so he, he said it was a play on that title. In and, and mm-hmm. um, although he was talking about genocide and not the rise of a fascist leader, but but still borrowed from from that title. Well, anyway, it not- just struck me as as interesting because I don't know how. How often in the history of doing this show, Sinclair Lewis has come up? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there, there was there was a, a new adaptation of it done in uh, 2016 with, uh, in California, which was very successful. And in 2016 as well, uh, It Can't Happen Here became a bestseller again. So, you know, it, it, it kind of comes in and out of fashion depending on what's going on in the political world. Um. You know, you've mentioned California twice um, mm-hmm. as far as revivals of plays. And I want to talk about, you know, Broadway versus California when it comes to live theater. But I have to take a break here. Um, Bob, Sally, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Oh, you absolutely. Bet. Oh, that would be great. My guests are uh, Bob McLaughlin and uh, Sally Perry. They are the co-authors of... Broadway Goes to War, American Theater During World War II. And uh, we're going to let our broadcast partners at WFOV 92.1 LPFM, Our Voices Radio in Flint, squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House, Spectacle Productions, and my friend Paul Herring. And if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And uh, then we'll return and talk more about uh, World War II and Broadway. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You know, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program, and we continue now with my conversation with the co-authors of a book called Broadway Goes to War, American Theater During World War II. They are uh, Robert McLaughlin and Sally Perry. They join me by phone. Bob, Sally, uh, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Uh, I, actually, <laughs> I, enjoyed, I enjoyed some of those commercials. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sally, just before the, uh, the break, um, I, I was referring to a couple of references that you made about uh, live theater and, and play revivals in California. Um, mm-hmm. is, is California... Um, is is live theater growing in California? Historically, it's all been about movies and making movies. Um, well, actually, um, the the theater I was referring to was was the Berkeley Rep, which did a uh, a new version of It Can't Happen Here in 2016, which was, which was quite successful. But you know, interestingly enough, um, uh, during during the war years, um, after ple- after people were in plays, the plays toured all over the country because, you know, obviously there was, you couldn't, most people didn't travel to to New York to do plays. So people would, so big stars, Helen Hayes, for example, would tour all over the place, London Fontaine. And in California, there were actually a lot of little theaters because actors who had gotten in the movies, who had gotten typecast in certain roles would like to do theater to sort of show that they had a broader range people coming up who wanted to be in the movies would also join a lot of these little theaters and hope that a producer would come by, a director would come by to see perhaps one of their friends in a show. So, you know, um, there's, there was actually uh, a lot going on in theater in California at the time, um, as well as now. And um, now after doing the well, let's see. I guess I have to go back even further than that. I was going to say after doing the uh, the book, um, we'll always have the movies, American cinema during World War II. What what got you started on on that and and now this book uh, about entertainment during the wartime? Well, um, we're married, as, as as you might guess, which is why we're on the same phone. Uh, I wasn't going to say anything <laughs> about that, just just in case it was a secret. <laughs> yeah, we've been married almost 40 years. Um, actually, our, our interest in the war got started because both of our fathers served in World War II and would never talk about it. And I, I think, mm. you know, anytime people don't talk about something, you obviously want to know more about it. Um, and then we're all we're also movie fans, and we started watching movies every night with dinner, and we just start talking about them. And for the lowest have the movies, we watched oh well over six hundred movies made between the late nineteen thirties and nineteen forty six to come up with that book. And then for the for the playbook, we were we were kind of wondering what was the difference because we're originally from New York City and we're passionately interested in theater, so we were wondering what the differences were. And you know, some in some cases, how plays were transformed into movies, and what was what was gained and what was lost. When we finished the movie book, Sally, so you know, we so many of these movies were adapted from plays. We should write about plays, and I, I was reluctant because I was afraid we'd be basically writing the same book, except 
the subject matter would be different, but you're coming to the same conclusions. And um, <laughs> Writing the same so, book, Bob, writing the same book without special effects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but as, you know, we got into our research and started reading some of these play scripts, we realized that the, there was something very different going on in the theater, and so it became quite an exciting project for us. Well, let me let me ask about that, because... Um, you know, it's, it's it's one thing to binge watch a bunch of movies in preparation for a book about movies. But how do you research plays? Because you don't have the ability to just go out and see every play. Or do you just sit with the scripts and, and read all the scripts? Or are there video archives of, of some of these things? Well, sadly, the although there, there are video archives of a lot of contemporary plays that that practice didn't really start until the late 70s so yeah, no these uh, were, were not were not filmed or preserved in any way um we we made a lot of trips to new york to the uh, library for the performing arts and read scripts that they had there um luckily in the 1940s most plays even if they weren't really successful were published so we were able to you know you go to used bookstores and whatnot and find uh, a lot of copies of the plays. Uh, we spent some time in the Library of Congress looking, looking at scripts. So, yes, it was not as easy as sitting down in front of our television set and uh, popping in a video cassette. Yeah, so we've, we've seen some, some productions of some of these plays. Um, when I lived in New York in the, eight, in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, um, I actually produced a, a musical called um, Let's Face It with... Uh, Words and Music by Cole Porter, and it starred Danny Kay. And it was uh, originally starred Danny Kay, um, and it was his first um, major starring role. And little did I know, you know, all these years later, I would be writing about it. But that was that was one thing. We there were there were a couple of theaters that we have seen uh, revivals in. There was a, a theater in St. Louis where we saw a production of Cry Havoc, which was a play about nurses on baton. Um, also, we'd like to give a shout-out to Metropolitan Playhouse in New York. They did a, a, a wonderful revival of Deep Are the Roots about um, a black serviceman returning to his, his hometown after the war and the amount of racial prejudice that he encountered. So, And, and I guess the other, the other thing is we're both involved in, in community theater and have been for some time, and I direct, and so I can kind of see in my mind's eye how these plays would have worked and... Sometimes it's a curse. For the book, it was a blessing. Yeah, Bob, how, how did you go about targeting the place? Is, is, is there a way, is there a record somewhere of the plays that were showing on Broadway during those years at various theaters? Well, well luckily, uh, starting in the 1930s, uh, there was a Broadway theater reviewer named Burns Mantle who put together a Broadway yearbook for every season. Really? Uh, and what a tremendous yeah. resource. Oh. <laughs> and so he would include the scripts for what he thought were the 10 best plays of the year. But then in one of his appendix, he uh, had the information for every single play that opened on Broadway that year, the, the production information, a short plot summary. So we were able to go through those and develop the list of the plays that we thought we needed to see or needed to read, uh, because obviously not every play was uh, uh, war-related. Um, and we found sure. a little, ended up with a list of about 200. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the other thing um, is that 
back in the 40s, there were a lot more theater critics than there are now. And um, so we would find we could find out a little bit about the audience reaction and so forth by, by reading the reviews. There actually is a a year-by-year year, um, compendium of critics' reviews in the 40s. And so we could cut, we could sort of align um, the Burns Mantle book with the uh, reviews of the plays. And that, that would give us sort of a, a broader idea of what they were like and how the audiences reacted and so forth. Over this last year, with everybody consuming movies on television, I, I, I think uh, film critics uh, or, or the role of film critics has been played by teenagers living in the house. <laughs> <laughs> that can be good and bad. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, were there some surprises in putting this book together, some some real gems that, that came and went without any real notice? Yes. We, we found a couple of plays that we, we think are just terrific, but that did not do well at the time and have kind of been lost. Um, one of them is a play by Maxwell Anderson, who at the time was a very you know, important playwright, though, again, he's, his reputation has kind of gotten submerged over the years, uh, called Truckline Cafe, and it's about... Uh, of servicemen returning home after the war and trying to rebuild their their lives, trying to reestablish relationships with their wives and uh, and children and whatnot. Um, it, it was uh, in, an early Marlon Brando appearance before he uh, before he hit it big with a Streetcar Named Desire, um, but it's it's extremely powerful, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was it's really and you know it was directed by Elia Kazan. Carl Malden was in it. It was a very good cast, and for some reason, some those are big names today. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah, and you know when big names appear in in these plays, we try we try to point them out so that if people are reading it, they can kind of kind of see how how it how it might have worked. Whether we're talking about Marlon Brando or Charles Coburn or John Garfield or or whoever. Mm-hmm. But you know that that was that was a great one. There's the one I, I mentioned a little a little while ago. Deep are the roots. Um, there were a number of plays, especially towards the end of the war, that dealt with race relations in the United States. Returning uh, black servicemen who you know, had you know, may have been promoted to uh, lieutenant or captain or whatever. They come back to the United States and they are treated just like they were before the war. Um, and so we, 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 that was one of the other things we found was that the plays were better at dealing with issues of race um, than the movies in general were. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's true about a lot of controversial things. There's something about live theater as opposed to watching it in a film that, that makes it seem more real, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Uh, Sally mentioned that we saw a production of Deeper the Roots at the Metropolitan Playhouse, and there's a scene where the returning uh, African-American serviceman is arrested, and he's beaten up by the sheriff and his deputies, and having that take place right in front of you was, I mean, even though you know it's staged and nobody's really getting hurt, it was still extremely powerful. Yeah, I, I saw, uh, and you mentioned that you're both active in community theater, and there's a, a great deal of community theater in, in my area, and I, and I hope it comes back. I, we haven't had it for a while, of course, like a lot of places. But um, but I, uh, I had a similar experience, Bob, seeing a hanging on stage. Mm. 
Ooh. And that that was a little intense. Um, yeah. <laughs> and 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 again, there's something about it being three dimensional, the way it is when you watch a play, and and there's a different way you watch a play than the way we watch movies. We're not as apt to get up and run out during a play and get popcorn. Oh, it's it's true. And, uh, you know, if you're watching a movie in, in your home, you say, oh, well, uh, we'll skip ahead or you'll be reading the paper or looking your, at your phone while you're while you're watching that. In, in the theater, you're there. And there, there's not a lot of other distraction and you, you just kind of can't get up. So if something happens like a hanging or the pistol whipping in deeper the roots or something... It it affects you uh, much differently, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really away. does, it, and and it's a it's a funny, a funny experience for people who enjoy going to the theater, um, because you know they always talk about the fourth wall and how much fun it is mm-hmm. to play with that when characters break that and talk directly to the audience. But the truth is, once a play gets underway and you get caught up in it something changes about the room you know there really isn't a fourth wall it's almost as if the play engulfs you oh yeah yeah absolutely and you know and especially when you're talking about things that are be either psychologically disturbing or when the characters are undergoing something that perhaps you're afraid of or have been thinking about and they bring it to life. I, th- I think that, that that can affect audiences in in, re- in really good ways because it's, a, oh, okay, well, I'm not alone. Um, I've been thinking about this. Oh, so this is how, so this is how it works. It, it's, 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 it's sort of a fascinating experience. The closest I can think of um, in film is the, the wonderful World War II movie, Best Years of Our Lives. And, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen that, and in that there's a a sailor who has lost his arms, and the camera is very voyeuristic in, in terms of what happens when his arms come off. What does he look like? How does he use his hooks and so forth? Uh, that's that's the closest I can see. I, I can I can kind of I, I can kind of think of. But in, in theater, you know, you're 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 right. You're you're basically right there. And was that Frederick March? Yeah. Uh, yes, Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Myrna Loy. It's, a, it's just like the best movie of the war, I think. <laughs> what about what about comedies? Did comedies play better? Um, you know, I I'm one of those people who likes to get away from reality a little bit with a screwball comedy or mm-hmm. or some other kind of comedy. But how did comedies play in film versus on Broadway? Well, they uh, interestingly, Broadway and Hollywood kind of saw themselves drawn to a lot of the uh, same to- war-related topics for comedy. The uh, uh, when the draft was instituted, the idea of a bunch of civilian misfits going into the army uh, <laughs> provided. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a, a cute play called uh, "Strip for Action" about a, a, a burlesque comic who gets drafted and all the trouble he gets into trying to put on a burlesque show for his fellow soldiers. It's, uh, <laughs> I love it. it. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, kind of the, the whole, uh, mismatched romance sort of thing, you know, people, uh, it, uh trying to have very hasty romances before mm-hmm. they go overseas. There's a lot of opportunity for humor in that. Um, 
the young people in the war. There was a very popular comedy called Janie about a teenage girl who's, you know, she wants to grow up too fast. She really wants to be involved in the war effort, but she's just a little too young. Um, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of great comedies. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and in Janie, the, the, the kind of climax of the play is she decides to invite a couple of soldiers from a nearby camp over to her home. And, of course, you know, hundreds or seemingly hundreds show up. And when the parents come home and find this, uh, you know, all... Uh, it, 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 it's, it's quite a calamity, but it, it's, it's funny in the, in the, in the same way. And, and Jamie was an enormous hit. Oh yeah. Um, and actually got turned into several movies. Mm-hmm. Did, did, uh, Broadway do the same kind of, uh, campaign for war bonds that, that Hollywood did during, uh, World War II? Yes, there were, um, a number of shows that kind of built Built war bond auctions into the into the performance. Um, I forget which show there was where they had the young woman who had like war bonds all over her, and you were supposed to buy them. And by the time the last war bond was taken, she was practically naked. <laughs> um, uh, the the so, some of the sh- I mean, not all of the shows were uh, you know uh, plot based. There, there were a lot of uh, reviews or mm-hmm. burlesque sort of things and they would work things like that into their thoughts so you know certainly not to the extent that hollywood was able to do it um right and then you know and then also there were some plays uh this is the army is probably with the music by Irving berlin was probably the best example um all the money ra- that was raised for that went to the um army emergency fund and mm. that play was um staffed with, with all the servicemen and it had a successful Broadway run, then it went a tour, then they uh, made the movie of it out at Warner Brothers, and after that they took it to England, and after that they went on a World War tour, uh, a worldwide tour. Oh, yeah, they ended uh, up in the South Pacific. Yeah, they? they made millions of dollars for the Army Relief Fund. Um, it's also interesting, a lot, of, uh, a lot of Broadway casts would, like, do short lunchtime versions of their shows. They would go out, like, to... Uh, oh, okay. Or to... Uh, uh, the, the, the naval yard, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. they would put on like a half-hour version of their show to entertain the defense workers. As part and and uh, and and maybe at some rallies and things. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Oh yeah, absolutely. And 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 you know there were there was also the the stage door canteen. I mean the stage door the the one in in Hollywood is well known, but there was a, a stage door canteen in New York as well, and a lot of Broadway performers after their shows would go to the canteen and serve food or dance with the servicemen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've done uh, the American cinema during World War II. You've done American theater during World War II. What's next for you two? <laughs> oh, dear. That's a good question. You know, one of the problems with planning projects like this is they always take longer than you think they're going to. You know, <laughs> I wish we could write this book in a year and uh, well, 10 years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. There's a, it, we have kicked around the idea of trying to make it a trilogy and look at uh, fiction during the war. Uh, but, uh, you know, how, how was the war incorporated into uh, novels that were being published? Um, that's a that's a big order, though. I don't I don't don't know about that. It is. I mean, it, it's interesting because obviously, you know, again, you had the synergy between um, between novels and Hollywood and and and, and the theater. Um, one of the things that I've been looking at recently is how 
um, Haldewar has seeped into a lot of mysteries written at the time. And the, and that part that's part part is kind of interesting. Maybe we'll just stick with it, stick with mysteries. Just uh, do doing a book on mysteries that then, might work. You know, Char- Charlie Chan and that and that sort of stuff. Right. Perry, Perry Mason. I mean, that the, there there also there are all sorts of sort of series books that people would would read that um, incorporate the war in, in different ways. And and sometimes you know, especially in town in cities that were affected by the blackout, the blackout is a great way for crimes to be committed because when the blackout lifts, there you know dawn comes somebody's been murdered <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I, it, when you started talking about charlie chan i thought of, um is it terror by night the sherlock holmes uh oh, yeah. thing yeah, about the yeah. uh, bomb site um and mm-hmm. and there are so many of those but then there's also something kind of interesting that happened sort of in the wake of world war ii largely because of the use of the nuclear bomb mm-hmm. was its impact on science fiction mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah, you know, one of the uh, another possible um, thing that we're thinking about doing is is one on uh, another one on movies, but the sort of improbable heroes of the movies. So Sherlock Holmes, Charlie Chan, Tarzan of the Apes, that sort of thing. Plus, Francis the uh, Talking Mule. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, how how can you miss uh, the precursor to Mister Ed? <laughs> That's right. And you know, and there are also lots, lots of films about how teenagers or dogs or something help to win the war in their in their own ways. I mean, there, there's a whole series of movies about Lassie uh, during World War II. Oh sure, although I mean, for uh, some reason I don't think of Lassie as as being a military dog as much as I do Rin Tin Tin. But maybe well, that, you know, maybe Lassie, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Lassie actually jumps out of a plane in, in one film, and in another is almost um, put to death uh, because he has PTSD and has to be defended by Frank Morgan at the end. Otherwise, he otherwise he would have been killed because he tried to kill poor little Elizabeth Taylor. Well, very sad. <laughs> Bob, Sally, I am such a fan of the movies and of live theater that I could talk with you all day but unfortunately we're almost out of time but i always want to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about the two of you and your work past present and future do you have a website do we no (laughs) (laughs) we're looking at each other physically (laughs) Uh, no we don't Uh, probably um if if you uh, google us at illinois state university Oh, I think go. that the inf- interesting information will come up. Right, and we also do have a website for we'll always have the movies, um, American cinema during World War II. I guess that this is going to inspire us to start one for Broadway Goes to War I, as well. I guess we better. <laughs> well, and and uh, Illinois State could have the, um, it is Illinois State, right? I heard that it, right. Yeah, Illinois State University, yeah. Um, and and I, I'm sure that they would have links to pages about various uh, projects that you work on or could have very easily. I I just have to tell you, it's been a real uh, honor and a privilege to talk with both of you. Well, thank you very much. It's nice of you to have us. Yes, and and, and, and as you can tell, we really like talking about this sort of thing. (laughs) Oh, I do too. And and like I said, I could go on all day, but we have to end it there. And and I'll just say thanks again and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Todd. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was uh, Robert McLaughlin and uh, Sally Perry. They are both professors of English uh, 
at uh, Illinois State hey. University. <laughs> we'll be back. The unknown comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All oh, the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. What a great way to kick off the weekend. And uh, speaking of the weekend, um, and and really the summer that's uh, finally upon us, as we uh, kind of wrap things, we get close to the end of this whole COVID-19 uh, shelter-at-home situation, and more and more people are getting out. That was uh, Joel By and the Blue Hawaiians. And uh, this morning, Back to the Bricks began its return this summer with the return of its promo tour. They're calling it the Visionary Promo Tour this year. Back in 2018, the Tom Sumner program went on the promo tour and did shows from all the various uh, stops on the location. And that year, we uh, did a remote broadcast from Back to the Bricks, which is coming back this summer as well. And uh, Joel By co-hosted with me 
Joel By from the Blue Hawaiians. And um, I thought maybe as a, as a send-off for all the people that are uh, headed on the, uh, on the promo tour around Michigan, some 300 cars, all part of uh, Back to the Bricks Visionary Promo Tour, I thought maybe I'd play an excerpt of uh, Joel By and I uh, hosting a remote broadcast from the Bricks during Back to the Bricks uh, from 2018. Thought it'd be a good way to wrap up the show today. I don't know how much of this we'll be able to get in, but here we go. Now, I don't know what your first car was. Mine was a 69. Well, first I had a 68 four-door Skylark. Ugly green. <laughs> and I loved it. You know, 352 barrel, you could sit on the hood, change the plugs, points, and condenser, get on down the road. Now, well, uh, but last night I saw my favorite car. You always have that one you wished you'd kept. And it was a 69 Skylark convertible, blue. Really? Oh, man. I put glass packs on it and had to, that's when you could run them in front of the back tire. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it didn't make all that. I didn't want it real loud, but man, that thing would go. 352 barrel, bang! Beautiful car. I missed that car. There, I saw one last night. Gary Jones and I were playing the cork and last night, and they were coming in, you know, pretty good pace, and we played from six to nine, and then they were all starting to come come in, so I'd, I'm trying to remember the words as I'm trying to go, Gary, look at that, look at that, <laughs> you know, there's some fabulous, fabulous cars here. Well, you're talking about first cars, I think my first car was one of those that, you know, my mother gave me her old car when she got a new car. Yes. And it was a 72 Pontiac Catalina. Wow. It was a boat. <laughs> yeah. And, you, you probably got about nine feet to the gallon in that or something. Yeah, but gas was, what, 35 cents a gallon? Right. You know. Right. So, so I could afford it. But, but the first car that I really count was a 1974 MG Midget. Mm. And it was red like that MG... And I always wanted one of those. There's an MG right across uh, Kersley Street from us. By the way, you're welcome to join us uh, as we do this Saturday morning cartoons edition. That means we're going to play tunes about cars. And uh, and we're going to probably talk to some of the people that are wandering through. You never know yeah. who might show up. We might, yeah. might oh, you'll hear a little uh, engine revving occasionally. Oh, and you hear a little pipeline in the background. Yeah. And, and, I mean... You know, it's it's one of the country's biggest car shows, and it it's is. going on it in is. downtown Flint right and, now. And they, you, you know, you see a lot of these old cars, and you think well, that was made right over there. Yeah, that was made down Chevy in the Hall. That was made out there. You know, they really are coming back to the bridge. They are. They really are. And I I think uh, this is a wonderful event. And you know, there, there's been so many negative things about uh, Flint as of late. You know, the lead lines. For instance, when I first heard that, I thought, why does it have to start here when every, look at the industrial cities, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Chicago, New York City, they all used lead. They all used lead. Oh, yeah. The only, the only, the. They used, lead was like the miracle thing, man. It, yeah. You know, there was, 
lead in the pipes. There was yeah. lead in the gas, lead in the paint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Superman couldn't see through it. No, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it was it was like the miracle metal. It, it, it really was. <laughs> and only the affluent could afford copper. And why they went with copper, I... There were guys. There were guys uh, from the, the chemical companies, um, and, Dow and, 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 yeah, and yeah, that were on the road with a campaign pitching lead. I mean, it was like got wow. lead, you know, in in the twenties and thirties, you know, because it was this really cool thing, and they were well, selling and, it and, hand and, over fist and very and very easy, as I understand, very easy to. Uh, well, very pliable. You could use it, you know, oh, yeah. in, in any shape or form you wanted to. You know, you. I, I, I want. I want to get to our first piece of music, and, oh, yeah. and this is a little send up to the late great Aretha Franklin. Oh yeah. And uh, we R.I.P. Rest in peace. Saturday morning Lady cartoon Soul. starts out. Yeah. With Aretha. Yeah. God bless her. Wrapping things up with a little, uh, oh, what would you say? Just shooting the breeze with Joel By from the Blue Hawaiians when uh, the Tom Sumner program broadcasts live from Back to the Bricks in downtown Flint. Back to the Bricks is back this year. Good to have them back. In fact, they uh, started out this morning on uh, this year's promo tour where they stop in cities all over the state. And um, then they uh, left Flint Township this morning. Uh, to start their visionary promo tour. What a great show today. Thanks again to uh, Robert McLaughlin and Sally Perry from uh, Illinois State University, uh, the co-authors of Broadway Goes to War, American Theater During World War II. And, of course, a guilty pleasure for me in the second hour of our three-hour tour today, one of my favorite TV shows uh, from the 80s is uh, back through a book by television historian Scott Ryan, uh, Moonlighting and Oral History, and Scott was uh, uh, checked in by phone um, during the second hour of our three-hour tour. But we started out this morning with a packed hour. Um, Adrian uh, Woodland from AAA talking about a survey they did last year on... Um, aggressive driving and and uh, who's more aggressive men or women and then we talked about women in in, uh, in comic books uh, starting with Mackenzie Lee um, who's uh, doing a series of uh, featuring anti-heroes from the Marvel Universe and her new book is Gamora and Nebula and we also talked with Marissa Meyer who uh, wrote about arch enemies anyway have a great weekend. Good night, everybody. The Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. 
Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.